All right, good morning. Welcome, everybody. So thankful that everybody's in the house of the Lord. Labor Day weekend. That's awesome. I know we're missing quite a few people, which is expected, but uh, welcome, everybody that's here. Um, we're going to get right into the Word, Revelation chapter 13. I've been doing a series of messages, and uh, the title of the series has been The End, so I'm going over different prophecies that the Bible says are going to happen in the end times. And um, so what we're doing is trying to um, identify what those prophecies are, understanding all the details of those prophecies, and then trying to determine are those prophecies things that are occurring in our time or are they not? And so that's how we need to approach the Bible. What's the Bible say? How does it describe? What are the identifying prophecies? And then say, okay, now are they happening now exactly like the Bible said, rather than doing the opposite? The opposite is to read the newspaper and try to make them fit into the Bible. And so we don't want to do that. We want to read the Bible first, understand every detail, and then it's pretty easy to determine is what's happening uh, today exactly what the Bible talked about. Does everybody follow me on that? All right, let's read Revelation 13. Very fascinating chapter of the Bible. And uh, the title is The Two Beasts of Revelation chapter 13. So very important to understand these two, what the Bible calls beasts. Well, doesn't this sound intriguing, right? Beasts. All right, let's read it. Uh, then I, this is John talking. So then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Having set seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like that of a be- the feet of a bear, his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, the, dra- the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So I just want you to take this at face value, he's having a vision here standing on the shore and seeing an unusual creature that looks, it has seven heads. Now that alone is an unusual animal, right? Seven heads, ten horns, and on each of the horns, ten crowns. So a crown on each of the um, horns. And on each of the heads, there was a blasphemous name meaning a name that uh, brought blasphemy to God. Okay, so how many think this is an unusual dream so far that he's seeing here? And the beast was given authority from the dragon, and so the previous chapter, he, he talks about the dragon in detail, and it's actually Satan. So Satan is giving this beast, whatever it is coming out of the sea, authority, and so it's authority of Satan. How many think this is an interesting dream? <laughs> okay. Very fascinating. So then he says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, his great authority. I saw one of the heads as if, as if it had been mortally wounded. That means uh, like a death wound, okay? And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world, now who marveled at this? The whole world. That's a lot of people, right? Right now, that's about 8 billion people. 
And it says, And the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon. Who was the dragon? Satan, who gave authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the who? Saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over who? Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Hear who, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then it says, then I saw another beast. If the first one wasn't enough, I saw another one coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Who's a dragon? Satan. So he looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, he was wounded, who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast, beast both speak and cause as many as would worship the image of the beast to be killed. And listen to this, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for its number. It's the, it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and I ask that you uh, give simplicity to this message, Lord. Uh, Lord, it's uh, written so that we might understand and uh, be prepared and be ready and uh, be confident in you, Lord. And I have no fear, doubts, uh, but be ready for everything that, um, that happens in this world, Lord. You prepared us. You've given us peace that passes all understanding, Lord God. And uh, do it today, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, Lord. All right, I'm going to go through this, and this is going to be two or three weeks of going through Revelation 13. So I want to set it up really nice, and don't be frustrated if you don't understand everything. Okay, I'm going to make it as simple as I possibly can, and so there'll be a lot of things that you will understand, but there are still things you may not understand, and that's okay. Uh, I've been studying, just for your information, I've been studying about 30 years and I'm one of those people that studies day and night and has thousands of books. So I've been studying for a long, long time this information. So sometimes I may even assume you understand it and you don't. 
But there are going to be some things you will understand. And I'm going to do it very simply like I did last week. Last, uh, In fact, this is the fourth part of my end series. Uh, the first two weeks, I taught on the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus sitting on the mountain called the Mount of Olives right before his crucifixion. And he's giving a prophetic um, timeline to his disciples. He's telling them exactly everything that will happen in the end in the exact order of the book of Revelation uh, tells the same events. So Jesus, 60 years before the book of Revelation was written, Jesus was already giving, giving his disciples the spoiler, right? He already spoiled everything. He told them, spilled the beans on everything that's going to happen in the end times. Because Jesus doesn't want us confused. In fact, I told you it's very similar. Um, how many have ever, and I'll say this again, how many have ever watched a movie and you've watched that movie 10 times and somebody watches it for the first time? And so you're with them and you're like, not going to say anything. How many, how many can do that? Some of you are like, I'm the person that can't do that. I always have to tell them the end, right? But when you know the Bible, you're like that person that has watched the movie 10 times. How many know when you watch a movie for the first time, it's like virtual reality? You're in that movie. You're like, it's suspenseful and uh, it may be like mysterious and you may not know how it ends. You may not know when somebody's going to jump out of a corner and scare you. You may not know, you know, if, if the mystery is going to be solved by the end of the movie. So how many know that when you're watching that movie, you've got all kinds of emotions, right? But when you've watched the movie about 10 times, you no longer have those emotions, right? You're like, okay, right about here is where he jumps out of the closet. You know, right here is where the mystery unravels. Right here is where they find out it's him that did it, right? How many of you know there's no mystery when you watched it ten times? And so when you have the Bible in your hand, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a play or a production. We used to do a production every year when I was a kid. And for 20 years I was in that production as a soldier, a Roman soldier in an Easter play. And so for me... There was no drama whatsoever. I had the script in my hand and I knew the exact moment when I entered the scene and when I exited the scene, knew exactly how it would end. And how many know when you have the word of God, you have the script in your hand? Now, how many realize that if you've got the script in your hand and you know how everything happens and how everything ends, then there's no reason for you to live a life where you're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> and so the Bible does a great job of telling us everything that's going to happen. And so as we look at these two beasts in Revelation, I want to go through it like I did last week with the Gog and Magog war. In fact, last week I talked about a prophesied war, and I told you that Twitter, um, actually trending worldwide a couple of weeks ago, was the Gog and Magog war. Because people recognized that Iran, Russia, and Turkey had been meeting regularly and actually doing war games together. And, and, and they've been plotting together for quite a while because they all uh, have an interest in Syria. And so they have been becoming very close allies. And because of that, somehow, and I think this is a miracle myself, the world recognized that those are the three major armies that are prophesied to be allies. And can I tell you something? They've never been allies in history. 
They've always, for one reason or another, not been allies. And all of a sudden they're allies and the Bible prophesies in the last day about a war called Gog and Magog War. And so last week I gave you the who, what, when, where, how, and why of that war. That way when it happens or begins to happen, we begin to recognize this may be a prophetic word that's being fulfilled. And I told you there's one prophetic word that was fulfilled and, and some people never recognize it and never seen it. But the Bible says that there's going to come a day in the last days when Israel will come back to their land. And the Bible is very specific about how it's going to happen. The Bible says that the place will be a wasteland, that it will not be a fruitful land. The Bible says that they will come back from all the nations of the world. And the Bible says it'll happen in one day. And they said other nations have fought wars. Other nations have gone through battles. Other nations have done, there were different ways they became nations. You know, they had to get their independence. But in one day, they're going to become a nation. And how many know that the declaration um, was passed and in 1948, in one day, Israel became a nation and they became, they, they, they began to come from all around the world to Israel. And the Bible said that their land will become fruitful again. And when you go to Israel, which I did a couple of years ago, it is the most fruitful land you have ever seen. In fact, there are fruit trees all over the land, the government planting projects. I mean, it's considered um, uh, per capita the most fruitful land in the world right now because of so much being planted in that land. It's no longer a wasteland. It's a very fruitful land. So in our day, that was fulfilled, and a lot of people didn't even recognize it. And how many know that tiny little, if you look on a map, it's the size of New Jersey. The Bible says that it will become a stumbling block for the whole world in the last days. And how many know that that tiny little piece of land that you can't hardly even see, it's like a grain of rice on a globe. But how many know it's the center of world politics today? How many know that? And so we're beginning to see lots of different things that the Bible says are going to happen in the last days. So now we go to part four and we're trying to understand who are these two beasts? And so the first question we ask in the who, what, when, where, how, and why, that's the six things a reporter asks, right? So if a reporter goes out in the field and they've got to cover a story, they would liken that story to have the who, what, when, where, how, and why. Okay, so we're just going to be reporters today. We're going to look at the Bible and we're going to try to figure out, based on the scripture, what is the who, what, when, where, how, and why. So the who, first of all, is two beasts. The two beasts, um, one is coming out of a troubled sea and the other one was coming off of the land. And they both have very unique characteristics. And in order to understand who the two beasts are, you have to have a background in the Old Testament. And if you have a background in the Old Testament, you can quickly understand exactly, especially who the first beast is. So I'm going to take you to the book of Daniel and just bear with me through Daniel here. Because through Daniel, you'll understand everything that he's talking about in the book of Revelation. Daniel was written around 536 B.C. 
Okay, Revelation was written around 95 AD. So almost 100 years after Christ, the book of Revelation was written, but Daniel was written way back in 536 BC. So Daniel was an ancient prophet. In fact, imagine somebody prophesying something in America 600 years ago, 630 years ago, actually. And this is what's happening in the time of John having this vision in the book of Revelation. He's hearkening back to a vision that Daniel had. And so as you go to Daniel, uh, really Daniel is the key to figuring out what this vision is. So as you go to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is a teenager and he's taken captive to a place called Babylon. Anybody know where Babylon is today? Babylon is in the modern uh, nation of Iraq. And so Daniel is taken captive by the Babylonian army. They come in and capture Jerusalem. And around 604, they start the invasion. And by the time 586 comes, they destroy the whole city, take everybody captive. And all these Jewish slaves, they get taken into captivity in Babylon. So here's Daniel, a teenager, taken to Babylon, and the most powerful man in the world is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is laying in bed at night, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful empire in the world. He basically um, has an empire that spans bigger than any empire up until that day. He's uh, conquered almost every land around him, and he's troubled, he's in his bed and he's having a nightmare and he has this vision in Daniel chapter 2 and I'm going to give you the summarized version but he has this vision and he's troubled by it and he doesn't want to tell anybody what the dream is because he feels like if you have a word from God I don't have to tell you and so none of the people that were around him in his court could interpret the dream because he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. And so there was one um, in the entire kingdom, this slave named Daniel, who was a teenager. Um, they summoned him because he said he would interpret the dream. And Daniel starts off and he says that um, God in heaven, who is a real revealer of secrets, has told me about your dream. Isn't that amazing? God, who is the revealer of secrets in Daniel chapter 2, and he begins to, ex- begins to explain the dream. And in the dream, he says, you had a dream about a massive statue in the plain of Shiner, which is a part of Babylon, which is in Iraq. And he said, you've seen this giant statue. And the statue had a gold head had a torso made out of silver, had a uh, lower body made out of bronze, and then had two iron legs, and then had ten toes that were made of clay and iron. And uh, and Nebuchadnezzar was like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what my dream was about. And Daniel said, well, I've got the interpretation of that dream. And he began to say that, hey, your kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon. And, you know, that was not hard to prophesy at that time because Babylon was a world power. But here's what becomes very difficult is Daniel, by the power of God, 
begins to um, prophesy what the next three kingdoms are going to be. He says, your kingdom is going to be dissolved. And you're going to be replaced by the Medo-Persians. In fact, you can drop the Medo off. It just happened to be uh, the Median Empire was kind of connected with the Persians at that time. But this is what history... How many of you ever play any kind of games on PlayStation or anything where you see the Persian army? And so this is the rise of the Persian army. And he said, your kingdom is going to be replaced by the Persian army. And then said, the kingdom of the Persian army is going to be replaced by the Greek army. And so, how many remember a guy, and maybe you've heard of him in history, called Alexander the Great? And see, he's prophesying this in 560s. Daniel was written in 560s. And he's telling him, the Persians will, will overcome your kingdom... The Greeks, which happened in 333 BC, which is about 230 years later, Daniel says the Persians will be defeated by the Greeks, and then the Greeks will divide into four kingdoms and be overtaken by the Romans. And the Romans move all the way up until, you know, they're not overcome until around 296. When they're finally overcome, the one one leg of the Roman Empire, and then the other leg another thousand years later, and so he prophesies a timeline of world history. He's talking about Gentile world kingdoms. How many think that's amazing? And Daniel gives such detailed history. He not only gives a history that it's going to be the Babylonians. Then it's going to be the Persian kingdom overtaking you. Then it's going to be the Greek kingdom overtaking everybody. And then it's going to be the Roman kingdom eventually takes the four legs of the uh, Greek kingdom. But he does it in such detail. If you read the end of Daniel, he gives the detail of the four different directions the Greek empire goes. And he gives every detail all the way up until the time of Christ of everything that's happening in that kingdom. I mean, little details. Every verse is like a successive history to the point where there are a lot of secular historians that say, there's no way Daniel could have written that. There's no possible way he could have written it. The only problem is the Greeks were um, very... um, The Greeks, um, when, when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he took the largest scientific community with him everywhere that he went. And he preserved the writings of several different societies with that group of people that he had. And he wrote a book called the Septuagint where he put 70 of the best Hebrew scholars together. And around the end of the third century uh, BC, they actually put all the Hebrew writings in what's called the Septuagint. He put it all in Greek. So everything that Daniel wrote was in print um, around w- very early. And so all of the prophecies came after that. Everything that Daniel wrote in 5-something B.C. was preserved by the Greeks. And so there was no way that he could have not written it. Isn't that amazing that God did that? And so Daniel, and Daniel chapter 2, prophesies all these kingdoms. And then we get to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel is sitting on, this is several decades after that first prophecy... And Daniel is uh, sitting and having a dream and he's sitting by um, the sea. The sea is very troubled in Daniel chapter 7. He sees a troubled sea. And what does he see? 
he sees four beasts come out of the troubled water. Does this sound like a lot like Daniel's two beasts? Except there's four here. And so as he begins to see the dark, swirling crowd, clouds, a raging sea, uh, he saw four great beasts arise, and one by one they came to shore. The first one looked like a lion. The second one looked like a bear. The third one looked like a four-headed leopard. And the fourth was a terrible creature, he said, with huge iron teeth that swallowed up the world. And so what is he seeing? He sees the same thing he's seen in Daniel chapter 2. The gold was Babylon. And so it was represented as the lion in Daniel chapter 7. And then he sees the second one, which was a bear, which was the Persian Empire, which was the silver in Daniel chapter 2, part of the man. And then he sees the bronze part of the man. I'm sorry, the Persians was the second one. Third one was the bear, which was the uh, Greeks. And then he sees the last one was a terrible creature. And here's where I'm getting. In verse 7 of Daniel chapter 7, it says, Then in my vision that night I saw the fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and very strong. It devoured, crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled the remains beneath its feet. He was different. For many of the other beasts, he had ten horns. Now we're starting to see what Daniel was, or John was seeing. Remember the ten horns? And he says, and I was looking at the horns, and suddenly a small horn appeared among the ten. Three of the first horns were torn out by their roots to make room for him. This little horn had eyes like a human and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So out of the fourth beast rises ten horns, and the end of Daniel's vision, listen, the end of Daniel's vision, it says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. In fact, uh, Daniel is seeing this fourth beast, and out of this fourth beast comes a little horn And this little horn is speaking blasphemy against God. And this little horn, while he's watching this little horn, something amazing happens. It says in Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw the fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, very strong, devoured, crushed its victims. Huge iron teeth trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts. It had ten horns. It was. I was looking at the horn. Suddenly, a small horn appeared. Three of the first horns were torn out and make room for him. The little horn had eyes like a human and a mouth like a boasting arrogant. It says, then I watched and thrones were put in place and the ancient one then sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was poured out flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session and the books were opened. What's happening here? The fourth kingdom, out of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, it's going to be revived. And in the last days, he's prophesying, there will be a kingdom, the very last kingdom on this earth will rise up in the last days And while that kingdom is being set up, while that kingdom is being established, God is about to put an end to this whole thing. 
In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, when he talks about the four beasts, and he talks about this statue and these four kingdoms, he says, Then I saw a supernatural stone that was not carved by any man. And he said, I saw the stone hit those kingdoms, and they shattered like dust. And, and, and it's basically a prophecy about the Son of Man destroying the kingdoms of this earth. Daniel chapter 7, he sees the same thing. He says, even while the little horn is bragging boastfully, God is already setting up thrones to establish his eternal kingdom. And so what we need to understand is, there is a period of time called the tribulation. And during the tribulation, there will be a kingdom that's going to be established on this earth. And the Bible says it's going to rule the whole world. But here's the thing we need to understand. By the end of that seven-year period, it's like the enemy's last stand. It's the enemy's last moment. And what you need to understand is God, um, by the end of that seven-year period, God is going to establish a kingdom that's going to reign forever. In fact, uh, at the end of the tribulation in the Bible, uh, God is going to set up his kingdom. So the who, who are these beasts that the Bible talks about? Um, one, the first beast is a kingdom. And in fact, I'm going to get into more detail in the following weeks, but the first beast is 10 kingdoms that rule the whole world. And you say, man, I don't know. And I'm going to get into more detail in this. How many of you know, and I'm just going to, if it happens in our lifetime, which it looks very possible that it could, how many of you know that the United Nations for a very long time has separated the world in 10 economic regions. And so there's already plans in work. There are groups of people that are hoping right now to separate the world in economic regions. And so the Bible is prophesying, and I don't know if that's what will happen to fulfill this prophecy, but the Bible says that there will be 10 rulers who rule the whole world, and that's what the beast is. The beast is a is a person... And it's also an empire. And the Bible says, and I'm just trying to paint the description of what it looks like. That way you have the script in your hand if it ever were to happen. Okay? But the Bible says that one ruler, that first beast, will rule. And it will be ten rulers and one specific person's the face of that. And that's the Antichrist. Okay, he's called the little horn, he's called the Antichrist, he's, he's got all kinds of different titles in the Bible, but this beast is the Antichrist. Then there's a second one that rises up. And the second beast that is prophesied, if you just take it at face value, and you begin to look at who this second beast is, the Bible says that this second beast is a religious entity. It says that it is a, it looks like a lamb, but it has two horns and looks like a lamb, but sounds like the dragon. And it says that this religious entity, whoever it is, this lamb that speaks like the dragon is trying to cause the whole world to worship this beast. And it says that uh, it, it really draws attention to the fact that whoever this Antichrist is, he died and appears to be healed. And this second beast is performing miracles in front of the whole world, causing the whole world to be deceived. 
And here's where it gets interesting. It says that this beast not only is causing the second beast, is causing people to worship the first one, which is the Antichrist, but this beast also has power over buying and selling. And so the next couple of weeks, I'm setting the table for the next couple of weeks. But whatever this who is, this beast, it says that, in fact, let me read it here. It says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon, exercised all of the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth, those who dwell in it, to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so it even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth inside of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which were granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship uh, to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or the foreheads that no one would buy or sell except one has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this is what's very fascinating here. In fact, I just wrote down... There there are implications when you read that. When it says that all in the world, rich or poor, goes through six classes of people that basically covers the high and the low of every social class. means every person on the earth, it has control over buying and selling. So what does that tell you? It's an economic system. Everybody agrees that's an economic system. Can you imagine one entity having control over buying and selling? And and, and so church, we've got to be really careful. Because whatever is being defined here, it's going to be an entity that has power over buying and selling. An economic system that controls the whole world. Number two, there's going to be a marking. And how many know it has to be a tracking system? If you're in control of buying and selling, how many know the Bible says here they're going to be marked? So this is just me not knowing anything about the world around me. If this happens like the Bible says it's going to happen, everybody in the world has to be marked and tracked. So it's an economic system that covers the whole world, controlled by one entity. Everybody has to be marked and tracked. They have to have control and give approval of whether you can buy or whether you can sell. And that would be control over everything. They have to have the ability to stop the buying and selling. Correct? And then somehow... The mark, the buying, the selling, the economic system has to give worship to the entity. Right? I'm just telling you the implications of this prophecy. And so if it were to come to pass, all those things would be true. In fact, that is the, the win. Okay, the win, the win is very important. Let me go over the win. 
The Bible says that this will happen and when, when it will happen is in a period called the seven-year tribulation. There's a period in the Bible called the seven-year tribulation and it begins with the revealing of an antichrist who signs an agreement. The Bible says in uh, Daniel 9.27, he signs an agreement with Israel and it's a peace agreement. And when this happens, there are several other signs where it's unmistakable and unable to be missed. You won't miss it. When the, when the tribulation starts, the whole world will know it. And the tribulation ends at the coming of the Son of Man. The Bible says, in fact, I told you several weeks ago, the sign of his second coming is everything in the world is completely dark. And then you see the coming of the Lord. But the earth is just laid waste by then. Seven years worse than any time that's ever came upon the earth. So the wind is during the seven-year tribulation. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm worried. Is this happening now? Can I take the mark now? You know, can I, uh, can I make a mistake now? Is it possible it's going to happen now? No, the wind is the seven-year tribulation. But here's the problem. God has made a plan where he doesn't want us here during the seven-year tribulation. In fact, let me read you some scriptures. And Jesus, right after the Olivet Discourse, he pulls his disciples aside and he says, Hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself where I am, you may be there also. And where I go, um, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How many know that this is unusual? Jesus said, I've prepared a place in heaven. I'm going to come receive you to myself and take you there. And then the Bible shows us coming with him. At the end of the seven-year tribulation. How many want to be with the Lord and not on the earth? He says again, 1 Corinthians 15.20. You want to hear about a new world order? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But since man, by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as Adam... For as in Adam we all die, even so in Christ we are made alive, each one of us in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. How many know that it says there that at his coming then comes the end, and he gives all, and he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. How many are looking forward to that day when he gets rid of all this foolish authority, power, glory, all these other kingdoms, and God finally rules? Uh, Luke twenty-one says, "But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that the day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a trap on all those who dwell on the face of the earth." Watch therefore and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all the things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
I mean, oh, God is offering a way of escape. God, there's going to be a rapture of the church. In fact, Revelation says that you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. God's offering a way of escape. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, Wait for his son, come from heaven, we raise from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has made a way of escape. And when the tribulation seven-year period starts, I mean, no, the Bible says it's like a trap. Once you're there, you're there. And this Antichrist comes on the scene and uh, so the when is during the seven-year tribulation. The where is on the earth. We don't want to be on the earth at that time. How, through an economic system, a marking and tracking system, an ability to stop and buying and selling, an ability to worship an entity through it. Um, and the why. You say, why would an organization, in fact, I'm going to go into more detail, that if this happens in our lifetime, what would this system look like? How many know where I'm getting ready to go on that? How many know that right now there are tracking systems and and they would love right now to track and mark every single human on the face of the earth? There's a group of people that have been hoping for a very long time. In fact, uh, Ryan's back there waving his cell phone. And how many know they would love to put the cell phone inside of you? And they would love to mark you. They'd love to have facial recognition. They'd love to have a digital wallet. They would love to have all of these marking mechanisms. And uh, and I'll get into more detail in the next several weeks because I want to prepare you. You say, man, it scares me. It shouldn't scare you. Because God says if we're ready and we're right with the Lord, guess where we're going before all this mess comes on the earth? We're going with the Lord into heaven. And we're going to return with him to rule and reign. That's good news. He said, comfort yourself with this thought. He didn't say be worried about the Antichrist and the tribulation. He said, I'm saving you from the wrath to come. Be ready. And he wants us to be ready. He wants us out here. He wants us to have the script. And so the... How and the why. Okay, the why. Why would they do this? In fact, I'm going to go into the why in lots more detail. But uh, how many have ever heard of the word utopia? Utopia was a word that originally started with a guy by the name of Sir Thomas More. In the late 1400s, he wrote a book called Utopia. And the idea was, in fact, they don't know if he was talking about a real place, imaginary place, or or if he was just using it as a pun, but he was calling it a place that was just perfect. In fact, uh, if you could remove, in fact, a lot of great minds have walked through the world and they said, man, if we could just end poverty, if we could just end crime, if we could just end, how many of you know with freedom comes a lot of problems? You get people enough freedom and you've got drug addiction, you've got people that are lazy, you've got people, you've got all these problems in the world that everybody else has to solve. And how many know there are some elitist minds and uh, they go all the way back to Plato in a book called Republic and the Greek city-states where they said they had the perfect uh, utopian paradise in the Greek city-states. And, and then it moved on to people like Sir Thomas More and, and then some of the great thinkers, now I'm going to say this like this, some of the great thinkers, that was their motivation. 
was utopia. Some of these thinkers were Lenin in the Soviet Union. How many have ever heard of Lenin, Stalin, Adolf Hitler? These are the great utopian thinkers, and we have a word for this. It's called dystopian. Dystopian means that I'm trying to create a utopia because I am a central planner that can solve the problems of poverty. How many of you know Lenin's, one of his favorite books was Utopia? Because he felt he could create a society without poverty, a society without crime, a society. And how many of you know the more you control society, the less freedom people have? The more freedom people have, the more problems you have with control. And so there's always been this balance of do we control society or do we give people freedom? And so some of these minds, and this is what I'm going to say what the why is. The why is what I would call dystopian altruism. Altruism means I selflessly want to use my mind to make things right. I want to give back to society and make the perfect society. And because of this dystopian um, altruism, there's going to be a group of central planners, according to the Bible, we're going to try to create the perfect society. And so how will they do it? And so I want to go through some of the ways that if it happened in our generation, which it looks very likely that this is prophetically going to happen in our generation, it has everything to do with the, our economy. In fact, I want to go over the crashing of the dollar. You know, the economy that we currently have um, they would love to crash our economy. Because when this economy crashes and the dollar crashes, uh, there are certain organizations that are ready to step in with a, um, with a um, cashless society. Cashless society marking every human being. Um, and so I want to go through over the next several weeks what possibly could happen in our generation And what possibly could happen in our generation to fulfill this prophecy. So the the how, the two beasts, it's an antichrist and an economic system that's going to be established in the last days. Um, The what is a worldwide empire. Remember, Rome wasn't a worldwide empire. They had ancient boundaries. But the Bible says this will be a worldwide. It's just every tongue, every nation. Every tribe will be a part of this last empire. That's why the monster was so vicious that John seen. John said it eats up everything. It's a vicious, terrible monster. It looks like the leopard. It looks like the lion. It looks like all these other kingdoms rolled into one. And it covers the entire world. Do you know there's never been one of those? There's never been a kingdom that covered the entire world. In fact, uh, Jesus said that as long as the church is here... The gates of hell will not prevail. Satan's never been able to establish that worldwide empire because the church is here. The church has to be gone in order for him to establish on earth what he wants to do. And uh, so the what is a worldwide empire. The when is the seven-year tribulation. The where is on the earth. The how is an economic system, a marketing and tracking system, an ability to stop buying and selling, ability to worship an entity through this. Why? Dystopian, altruism, a group of people that want to make the world a better place. But they have no God at all in their mind. 
when they do this. It makes it a dystopian, not a paradise. In fact, I wrote down, uh, uh, in fact, I don't get it going my notes here. I just happened to look up three characteristics of dystopian society. Government control, environmental destruction, technological control, survival, loss of individualism is what it put down there. And so that's what we're looking at if this prophecy were fulfilled. Um, So as we finish here, I just want to stress again the scriptures that the Lord, I mean, this is truth. Um, How many know that I, I just preach the truth? And if I don't tell you this stuff, I would not be, um, um, I would not be a good pastor. You know, if I didn't prepare you for prophetically what the Bible is saying is going to happen, if I look and see prophecies in the Bible and I see them so close to being fulfilled, and I don't give everybody the script and say, hey, here's what's happening, God doesn't want you here. God says He hasn't, He hasn't, appointed us to the wrath that's coming on the earth he says i'm preparing a place i'm going to take you out of here because i'm i'm he says i want you to be counted worthy of escaping what is coming upon the earth when he says all those things christ is saying please 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 just be right with me why is it so hard to just be right with god why do we have to be so rebellious and say man i'll just hold off another day I'll just wait another moment. Why is he so bad that we have to wait another moment to live for Christ? He's saying, I'm a good God. I love you. I died for you. I gave you all the information you need. I told you what's coming upon the earth. These are wicked people. You don't want to be on their side. Yet every day we keep rejecting him. And God is saying, today is the day. How many know that it's going to come on the world like a trap? It's going to suddenly find yourself in a seven-year tribulation. And I'm telling you, that first three and a half years, they are hunting believers. There will be people that become believers after the church is gone. How many know the whole church is going to be gone? Every true believer is going to be gone from this earth in the rapture. Then the seven-year tribulation. And any believer at that time, you will give your life You literally will be killed for your faith. And you say, man, that couldn't happen. Just imagine a world where there's not a Christian in the world. And now you're a believer. And it says very clearly during this period of time that the only way um, that you will survive is with your life, the testimony in your own blood. And, And the Bible talks about just massive executions, massive amounts of martyrs. These first three and a half years of the tribulation, literally this antichrist kingdom just hunts down Christians. And, and church, I don't, I'm just being as, and you say, man, I've never heard this before. I'm being as truthful as a pastor can possibly be. And I don't know why other pastors aren't preaching this, but we're in the very last of the last days, I believe the technology, you know, I talked about Gog and Magog and I told you if Iran, Turkey, you know, um, all the nations, Iran, Turkey, and Russia, if all those nations are lined up and look very close to making a move like the Bible says they are, you know how close we are to the end times? 
If they're allies and they're actually in position to do what the Bible says that they will do, do you know how close we are? If you look at Revelation and and you see that the technology that is necessary to fulfill what these two beasts are purporting to do, if that technology is here today, how close are we? And so I, I come today as just a warning. You know, let's get right with God. If you're not right with God, let's just make sure we are. Don't hold off another day. There's no reason to say another day. You can still enjoy so many things in this world and still be obedient to God. You can love God. You can be obedient to God. You can not be ashamed of God. Enjoy as much as you can this life, but let's be ready because this world is going to pass away and everything in it. It's all going to burn up, the Bible says. There's not going to be any of it left. Don't give your life because you're trying to hold on to this world. God's saying, let go of the love of this world. It's going to all pass away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Worship team, stand to your feet, everybody. Hallelujah. Rick, can you turn down the lights? Thank you. I just want to give everybody a few moments. We're getting ready to take communion. And our communion is just open for everybody. But the Bible does say very clearly, if you're right with God, you know, that communion is just a promise that, hey, I'm all right, I'm right with the Lord. But if you're not right with the Lord, it's just another reminder that, hey, I'm condemned already. You know, if I've not got Christ in my life, then I'm not going to make it through this terrible time. I mean, no, Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation that we have. Being right with him. And so I just want to ask you today, I, you know, with nobody looking around, everybody's eyes are closed. I just want to ask you, are you right with the Lord? Are you ready if the Lord were to return right now? Are you ready to go? And if that's you, I just want to see that hand. Let me see that hand. If that's you. But Chad, I'm ready, man. I'm right. I know I'm right. Don't be afraid. Just put that hand up. If that is not you, if that is not you today, I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to make a show of you. But you know in your heart whether you're right with the Lord or not, and today is the day. I'm begging you as a pastor to understand the times that we live in. If that's you and you're not right with the Lord, I want to pray with you. If that's you, let me see that hand. If that's you, I'm not right with the Lord, Chad. I want to get right. I see that hand. Anybody else? Put that, you put your hand down. Anybody else? I'm not right with the Lord. Chad, I know I'm not right, man. And I want to get right with the Lord this morning. Anybody else? Come on, just don't be afraid. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. There's no reason to be embarrassed. No reason to be embarrassed. Anybody else? I'm not right with the Lord, Chad. I'm telling you, in a moment, the Lord could return. You're stuck. You're trapped inside of a seven-year tribulation. Our only hope is the Lord. Anybody else? Chad, I'm not right with the Lord. I want to get right today. I want to get right today, Chad. All right, I'm just going to give a few moments. If that's you, you've never given your heart to the Lord or you're ready to come back to the Lord, I want to pray with you up here. Don't be afraid. Come on up here. I want to pray with you. Anybody? Say, well, Chad, I was once right with the Lord, but I'm not right with the Lord now. Anybody? Say, man,
Amen. I knew the Lord. I was not running the Lord. Just worship for a few minutes while we pray. Anybody else, if you're not right with the Lord, now's the time. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If we could bring our communion elements, hallelujah. We're to pass those out. I think we did, didn't we? All right. Hallelujah. All right. Has everybody been served? Who would like to take communion? Anybody else need any? Anybody else need communion elements? Anybody? Would you like some? Or you got it good. Everybody has some? Praise the Lord. Let's go on and open it up. There should be a pill there for the bread on top. Hallelujah. How many know all around the world, every believer in Christ is sharing the body of Christ? Hallelujah. Believers all around the world sharing this body. And the Bible says this, For I received from the Lord what I also pass unto you. So Paul is saying, I received it from the Lord Jesus, now I pass it to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the body of Christ. This is all of us and his broken body that bought our salvation. Hallelujah. So let's pray over the bread before we take it. Heavenly Father, we bless this body, Lord. Lord, this is each and every person that has trusted in you with their life, Lord, that have believed in you. Lord, I pray for your body today, Lord. Lord, that you would encourage everybody who's put their faith in you, Lord God, that you fill them with your courage, your strength. Oh, Lord God, that your grace would cover them, Lord. Oh, Lord, that they would grow in you, Lord God, and be mighty in you, Lord. Lord, that they'd be a strong influence to those who are around them, Lord. Your mighty anointing upon them, Lord. Bless your body, Lord. In your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. says in the same way after supper 
Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Can I tell you what that new covenant means? That means that we all are sinners. And Jesus died for those sins. Jesus died to um, give us grace to overcome our sins. And as we're overcoming our sins, he gave us grace to have forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. So in this blood is everything you need to stand before God righteous. Hallelujah. Let's bless it. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, I pray that there would be an understanding in every heart and every mind. Lord, that it's through your blood, not through our works, Lord God. Lord, although everything in our heart is to serve you and live for you and live righteously in everything we do, Lord God, Father, this cup, Lord, is your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, everything that we need to stand before you righteous in that day, Lord God. Everything that we need to be right before you, Lord, is in this blood. And Lord, we thank you today for your sacrifice, Lord God, this grace, Lord. Mercy, this covenant that you made with us, Lord God. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Take the cup. Hallelujah. It's taking a second to worship him. Hallelujah. Father, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, I pray that you bless everybody this Labor Day weekend. Let your spirit be upon them, Lord God, and with them, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah.